welcome to the podcast. We are speaking with Behan and Jamie Gifford, but they are much better known as the Totem family. Now, we are in a time, and, and you think, I just want to get away. I want to travel again. I want to travel in a responsible way. I want to travel in a romantic way. I want to do slow travel. I want to have freedom. I want to see uninhabited islands. I want to just want to pick up my family and go, and go sailing. But how do we do that? There are so many obstacles. I wouldn't know where to start. Well, actually, Jamie and Behan, they can tell you all about it, what steps to take. They've been doing so for 13 years. They give seminars. It was very inspiring to have them both as guests on the podcast. And you know what? Besides the fact that I learned a lot, I really just want to pick up my bag and go and go away. As a matter of fact, I would like to go sailing. So and that is what this is all about. You can find all the links in the show notes. And you can find it on their website. That's sailingtotem, T-O-T-E-M dot com. Obviously, our website is podcasts.earth. And without further ado, here's the podcast with the Totem family. Where are you exactly? Because I saw on your website somewhere in, in, the, in the Pacific, or am I totally wrong here? You know, you're right. Uh, well, we're we're in uh, we're in Mexico on the Pacific side, yeah. and uh, up the Baja Peninsula, inside in the Gulf of California. Yeah, we're about halfway up on the Baja side, and uh, in a little town called Santa Rosalia. Okay, uh, and are you legacy mining town? Are you stuck there, or are you can, you, <laughs> can you move around, or how is it? We can move around. Mm -hmm. We do have an uh, an engine with some issues right now. The engine's still usable, yeah. but um, it is somewhat limiting. And for what our plans are going forward, mm -hmm. we want to uh, we want to get it to a, a shipyard where we can do a, a fuller assessment mm -hmm. to see if the fix is a, a a simpler one or if it's a more involved one. And that assessment is like the you know the engine equivalent of open heart surgery. Oh, that doesn't sound very nice, actually. Then, hey, it could be that there's not much that's very serious to address with the engine right now but we yep. have to make a decision based on how it's aging if we want to go ahead and replace it because it may not have a lot of time yep. and if we were stuck replacing it i mean we we thought last year we would be getting to micronesia at the right. end of the year we would be in the middle of just nowhere in the pacific i saw the map indeed yes that's what the problem yeah. Yeah, 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 and yeah, yeah. that that is a really hard place to deal with major engine issues. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Is that ever happened before? Is it the first time that you have these problems with your engine? We've had a few lesser issues with the engine before. Yeah. Uh, it's just the nature of engines on boats and saltwater environment and and lots of use. And so uh, fixable, and they're they are fixable to a point. But in time, there's enough wear that um, at some point it, it can be that you're throwing good money after, after bad. If the, mm -hmm. like if we go and replace this one component part, but then we find that the transmission has excessive wear also, then it doesn't make sense. And yeah. it's, it's just too much investment. The cost of the transmission being thousands of dollars and it'd be better to put that towards the new engine. Or a new boat. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it's your house. Sorry, sorry. I apologize. <laughs> uh, obviously, I um, I heard about your family uh, on an article in uh, scmp.com. Family traveling around for over twelve years, thirteen years now. Very unlucky number, I would say as well. So that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, you're cracked, we cracked into year 13 and during a pandemic. So I guess uh, that could yeah. be. They also say it's unlucky to have women on a boat. But it's that's so. all. How many do you have now? Yeah. And bananas are bad luck too. So, you know. Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. But anyway, you're living the dream for a lot of people, um, I would say. We're living in the middle of a pandemic. Everyone is thinking about, you know, I want to go on a holiday. I want to get a van uh, to get away. And what you're doing is even better. You're on a boat and you're sailing around the world. And I've been doing for a long time. Everyone thinks, well, this is a very responsible way of doing things. It's a very sustainable way of doing things. And, you know, it's obviously perfect for social distancing, I would say. Huh? Um, and you did this, uh, you're from America, coming from the state of Washington, from what I understand. And um, yeah, how is it? Is it still romantic <laughs> after, after all these years or... You know, it actually really is. I mean, it when, is, yeah. uh, when we were sailing with our, our son was back, you know, he's at Florida University right now in the U.S. He was yeah. back for a winter holiday. And when he was with us in the last couple of months, we did 
a couple of trips. We came south from Pinasco and we, we went to a really lovely bay that's south of where we are right now. Even with the engine issues, it was fine. Um, yeah, I still get that tingle, that excitement when we're setting off, when we're not you know, entirely sure where we're going to be that night. Mm-hmm. We think we know, but it could be A or B or C. And uh, and just the feeling of working with uh, the elements and, and being uh, in the middle of them, being driven. Well, by. there's always surprises as well. So mm-hmm. we were last summer, last fall, north of here uh, in this other different bay, lovely spot, plenty um, magical by itself. Mm-hmm. And we were going out in the dinghy to look for whale sharks because they're known to be in the area. And we hadn't seen them yet, despite okay. many efforts to find them. them. I've seen and we're in yeah, out in the dinghy and we're going along. And then all of a sudden we see orcas and there was, there were what three or four orcas. Yeah. Uh, and we came and went near them, approached them slowly and then stopped and drifted. And they came over and one swam right under the dinghy. And it's, it's almost two times the length of the dinghy. So it's dangerous. Uh, magical. I would just wow. like to point out. <laughs> wow. That's absolutely beautiful. I've never, I've seen, I think I've seen, some whales uh, in, in uh, close to Canada, and I've seen actually whale sharks in um, in was it Dongle in uh, in the Philippines. So that was beautiful. Yeah. Right? That small oh, thing really? there, yeah, 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 it was really nice. Yeah. But orcas close by, uh, as close by as you, that that must be. Are you afraid when something like that happens, or? It's exhilarating, and fear is definitely a little tiny part of that mm. because they are bigger, definitely. much bigger, yeah. Um, and yeah, like I said, they do have teeth. <laughs> Um, and, and they're very clever. They're predators. They're very they're, big predators. Yeah. They're yeah, smart and 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 big predators, but they don't really have a history of uh, you know attacking um, vessels right. like we were in. And if we needed to, we could have put the engine on and and uh, skipped off. off pretty quickly. And that's where it's just a little tiny. I bit saw this movie like Orca. I remember a long time ago. Um, he attacked. I remember. Hey. Well, yeah, a little Hollywood have, in that. You may have heard about the orcas off of Gibraltar that are actually attacking boats. Is that so? Um, yeah. Last year, it is. Is there a reason um, for that? Um, or? So they've disabled a number of boats, and the believed reason is because probably, well, there are a couple theories actually. One, one prominent one is that uh, a, a boat damaged an orca, incidentally, and and the orcas didn't like that very much, and so they've literally been filmed. Um, kind of aggressively uh, going after and hitting and damaging the rudders on, on boats going past that region. Wow. Vengeance. Definitely. Yeah, a bit of vengeance. Yeah, and then vengeance. just uh, pure traffic and uh, being out of places in their environment. Uh, the soundscape of the ocean has been changed dramatically by the, the huge growth in commercial shipping. And it's not something that we think about, but okay. when you live inside that um, that soundscape is very unpleasant. What do you mean by soundscape? Of- what is that soundscape? The, the underwater noises. sound yeah. you know, oh, okay. from yeah. ships, the, the sounds that come off propellers and churning water. When when you're a mammal where your your one of your primary senses is sound through the water, sound mm-hmm. waves and for navigation and how they get around. And it's amplified uh, when you have when you have ships nearby, so and if Gibraltar is that focal point from which so many are funneled through and out, and that's where these problems are having, maybe that's a factor. We've uh, we've been in the water actually. Uh, typically, this time of year in Mexico, we'd be a little further south of here in a bay where humpback whales gather. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, it's like peak season, and you swim in the water. You put your head underwater. You hear them singing. Uh, we can even hear them singing. We can hear them through the hull. It is it is absolutely magical, and we don't have. Uh, the commercial uh, sound interruptions in there. Literally, cup of coffee in the morning and listen carefully, and you can listen hear the whales. singing through the hall. <laughs> right. It sounds like you still enjoy it after 13 years, that's for sure. <laughs> huh? Indeed. Yeah. But it's uh, you're living on a, what is it, 47 foot, which is like 14 and a half meters or something like that? It's coming yeah, from, 14. from Holland. 3. Yeah. Um, uh, meters. We draw 1.8 meters yeah. and. Um, you know, it's kind of like being in a super efficiency apartment. We, yeah. we joke that it's like being in a three-bedroom, two-bath camper van. Yeah. Um, although we don't have as much space as a camper van in some ways. Mm. And we have a huge backyard. That's right. Backyard is <laughs> Massive. Place. Except you can't walk there. Swimming yeah. is no, but fun. Swim, paddle, you know. Do you get used to it? Do you still think about it or you don't think about it at all? Or does it get too much sometimes? The area you live on. I, I think we think about it because it's part of our life. It's yeah. like if you're walking through a city that you've been in for your entire life you still have to pay attention to the cars around you and the environment around you and for us it's weather is different every day and so there's always thought about 
what change is going to happen that may not make it a great day in the water and, and being prepared for things like that. Right. And obviously you were five, now you're four, right? Um, one of them went to university. So do you have the feeling you have more space or? Well, yeah, actually we do because our daughters are teenagers and this, uh-huh. our son going to uni meant that they could each have their own cabin. Well, before uh-huh. our girls started cabin, our son had his own and um, that's nice. And our grocery bills cut in half. <laughs> That that is always good, but now you have to pay for university, so that compensates for that. That's right. Elsewhere. And in the United States, that is not a that is not no, a positive outcome. No, that is not funny at all <laughs> in the United States. I'm sure, and you have two to come still. I think. Hey, we can two to go. Yeah, yeah. So the name Totem, the name of your boat, hey, eh? um, where does it come from? Obviously, your website is uh, what is it? Sailingtotem.com. Let's be, uh, just say yes, that uh, immediately. You. Where does the name come from? So Jamie came up with it. Naming your boat is a very big deal in our community because nobody knows us by our last name, by our family name. Yep. Everybody knows us by our boat name. Okay. We're the totems. Um, and so choosing that carries almost in some ways it's harder than naming a child because you're picking the name that you're going to be called. And there's a few there's a few criteria that are important because we often speak to each other through a VHF radio Mm -hmm. and it may not be the best connection or you're in a foreign country and and with different languages involved you want the name to be simple enough to be understood Mm -hmm. clearly even when the transmission is is not the best or the people speak a different language and so and keeping it short because of emergencies if i've got to use a phonetic alphabet i want to know that you know tango oscar tango echo mike it's fast Ah, and easy and readily understood those were the kind of defining parameters and what we were thinking about and, and working on for a few months. And Having named our last boat badly. Yes. Is it? Uh, we love the <laughs> name. Uh, Deeply personal meaning. Uh, Maokamana. Oh. And um, yeah. That, that's mouthful, more difficult when you have to say that. Uh, in, uh, I can remember. Yeah. You know, but, yeah, I speak Bahasa and it was like, it's very meaningful to me, but not to But anybody. coming from the Pacific Northwest and Washington State and, and that part where the Native mm-hmm. American culture is a is a prominent feature mm-hmm. and uh and we liked to try and figure out how to work that in mm-hmm. and also something meaningful for families and this word after mm-hmm. a lot of gyrations it just hit one it day hit because it, as as a, a touch point to the culture that we came from mm-hmm. um and for something which really is like a spirit uh, that's looking out for you. That's maybe kind of a guide. That's maybe sometimes a little tricky. Um, it had a lot of layers of meaning that felt really appropriate for us. And uh, when it hit Jamie and he called me at work and was like, I've got it. <laughs> We're like, that's it. That's the name. Brilliant. brilliant. Now, um, we already talked about where you are. And so you basically, um, you're just stuck at the moment. Um, what is it like in you know where you are um, near Mexico in the pandemic, uh, obviously you have to make a living as well, and that must. And I know which, what what you do. It says mentoring, guidance, resources, practical support. You help people buy boats. I'm sure you go sometimes to the locations to do that as well. Um, that that all falls away during a pandemic. So have you been you know pivoting a little bit, and how does it work out for you? It's actually absolutely exploded our business because oh, really oh. being on the boat is yeah. so liberating um, mm-hmm. in so many ways. And I think people who are now in isolation or in quarantine at home and um, and under severe restrictions at home, they see that we're able to sail around um, to, in many places of the world impacted by the pandemic. There's mm-hmm. the restrictions on the boats are um, different in some ways. Being out sailing is very freeing. And and quite a lot of people want to try to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. We help people figure out how to go live on a boat and decide which horizons you want to point to. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pandemic normalized what we're doing with you right now, um, uh, connecting over the internet. Yeah. And so that's how almost all of our coaching works as well. Ah, and okay. Yep. What do you use, Zoom or? Here. Yeah, Zoom. we use Zoom. Yeah, okay. so, but we had started using Zoom probably a year before the pandemic. And so okay. for us, it was quite familiar. Great. We don't have to explain it anymore. Everyone <laughs> <laughs> already knows. But at Mexico itself has yeah. been actually quite a good place to be during the pandemic. They've slowed down, uh, limited people's mobility in the society to, to some extent, but they haven't locked everything down to the point where we're uh, stuck in a literally stuck in a marina or in a place where we can't move around. Mm -hmm. So it means on the downside is we don't go into town. We, we, uh, 
other than uh, a, a grocery shopping trip, but that's very controlled. It's a time of day when there aren't many people. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we don't go to restaurants and things like we may have gone in the past. Mm-hmm. But um, but we can still move from place to place, and we can go out to islands that are uninhabited and, uh, and enjoy them thoroughly. And so in many ways, the impact in our life has been quite minimal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but And we're, we certainly don't want to get COVID here or anywhere, but um, with this lifestyle, we can control our exposure risk quite quite easily. Other countries have locked down quite a bit more with all of our coaching clients who are spread around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've helped many and mm-hmm. understand how to navigate where they are. For example, in the Caribbean, yep. some island nations are quite locked up and other ones are much more open. And so figuring out a route plan for the Caribbean that lets you move safely mm-hmm. um, with the right protocols. Um, but enjoy life maybe more than you would if you were restricted to your home and to read the tea leaves on sure what, like it, yeah. what it's going to look like going ahead we're, we're only predicting but it's based on how countries have responded in the past year to different stages of the pandemic and then overlaying that forward to say okay maybe i wouldn't go there because things are starting to spike again and last mm-hmm. time they closed down quite quite quickly when that happened that sounds absolutely amazing and um you say you do everything by zoom the um, coaching and mentoring and um can you tell me a little bit more about that how that works uh, because sure. obviously people that are thinking about you're talking just a second ago about uh you know um, islands where you go to uninhabited i mean that's mm-hmm. makes me want to you know be away from london that's where i live so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty nice. It is. It is pretty nice. Um, and Zoom is the dominant technology. We'll really use whatever people are comfortable with. Yeah. Um, maybe they really only use FaceTime, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fine. We'll use that or Skype or WhatsApp or whatever it is they'd like to use. Um, Zoom makes it easy because we can record sessions mm-hmm. and provide them with a recording later so that they're able to um, uh, listen to something over again. If we go over, if we have a more practical session where we're actually teaching about something, whether it's systems on the boat or um, techniques for the way that we live this life and they want to have access to it. Mm-hmm. But the way we work with people uh, with one-on-one coaching is when they have interest, we have them fill out a form mm-hmm. that helps us learn a bit about them. And oftentimes we can read between the lines and pull out questions they haven't thought of or, or things that are maybe issues to work on. And then we have a Zoom call. Usually the first one is about an hour and a half. Okay. And we go through the things that they 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 know to bring up and then we bring up the things they didn't know to bring up mm-hmm. and we try with the past help them with yeah. the progression they can take so mm-hmm. that this unknown overwhelming uh uh plan to go and and sail live on a boat or maybe sail away doesn't feel so big and unmanageable anymore but feels like something they can break down and address one piece of there, there are there are probably a half a dozen significant pitfalls that happen that catch people up and and very often end the dream before it even begins. Mm-hmm. And they're um, mostly very manageable if you know them going in and how to step around them. And so um, we build this kind of framework to do that, to set people up for better success. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we're just guides. People have to make their own choices. Um, but it really is magical when we work with a family, like we have a family now from Australia mm-hmm. and they're very keen to get cruising. Australia shut down very, very hard. You can't come in or out of the country. Then they created this program where you could apply in for Australia, a special right. ability mm-hmm. if you met certain conditions to fly out of Australia. Mm-hmm. And they, they, so they got their exception. We they, helped them buy a boat on the uh, U.S. East Coast, and they're headed to the Bahamas shortly. Yeah, wow. so they've, they've made it work, um, mm-hmm. even during pandemic. So other things that we do, we, we do a lot of, um, right now, during pandemic, virtual boat so- shows. Normal times, we are in person at them, mm-hmm. giving presentations. And yeah. uh, and now, it's... Uh, it's a lot of Zoom seminars. Yeah, Jamie Zoom. did one yesterday about rigging fundamentals, for example, and teaching people things that normally he'd be teaching in person, uh, which we do just, we call it cruiser karma. Just within the cruising uh-huh. community, you do a lot of uh, giving and sharing with each other because no boat can have all of the spare parts that they need. And right. we all have different uh, bits of expertise for the systems that we have to maintain on board. And 
Um, yeah, winter times in Mexico, Jamie would usually do a number of these rigging seminars. Well, yeah. yesterday's was on Zoom. <laughs> wow, okay. Uh, yeah. I actually worked myself on the Fort Lauderdale boat show once uh, a long time ago. Um, was I think it's the biggest one in America somehow. But um, It's very large. It's, it's very large them, indeed. Yeah. yeah, so how do you do that virtually? Do you, I mean, do people show the boats? They, you have like a, a list of boats? and, and uh... So in terms of being able to see boats, yeah. uh, most of the... Uh, the major brands are actually doing those kind of privately and independently. I mean, they'll set up a virtual right. opportunity to see a boat and maybe tour it with mm -hmm. a broker that's using FaceTime or something like that while they do a walkthrough, virtual walkthroughs. Yeah. Um, and But a big portion of the boat shows also is uh, education components. And so that's where a seminar series will be set up. And like we, uh, uh, we did one for Toronto, one for Seattle, um, and they have lineups every day in, of different expertise and people dial in um, when they want to see things and then have somewhere between a week and uh, some number of months to rewatch programs afterwards. Mm -hmm. And some of the classes are inspirational and storytelling. It's just to help keep the dream alive for people that maybe live in the middle of a big landlocked country yeah. and, um, and aren't that close to water, but mm -hmm. somehow have this notion of going sailing. And so mm -hmm. it's trying to help pull people out to, to give it a try. Yeah. And other stuff is very topical. Uh, we've in the last two months, we've done rigging sales, weather, diesel engines, uh, provisioning. <laughs> I think we did one on storms and pirates and, and a lot and of unicorns. very practical. We'll come to topic. that. Yeah. We'll come to that now. Is that one of the pitfalls <laughs> you were talking about? Or? Yeah, well, you never you got to watch out for the pointy end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but really, we're so we're so grateful. I'm so grateful that um, we kind of stumbled into this because yeah. uh, into into coaching because we really think this is an amazing way of life. We we set off with the idea that we would have a sabbatical of probably you know somewhere between two years, five years at the outside because mm -hmm. our kids were going to get to a point where conventional schools would probably drive us back. And mm -hmm. and instead, what I feel like we unlocked is a wonderful secret to feeling connected on our planet to um, living closer to nature, to being really happy and fulfilled in ways that I can't imagine in our past life. And I thought we had a really good life, to be honest. It was yeah. wonderful. So if we can help unlock that for more people, and if we can support ourselves at the same time, wow, how, how did we get so lucky? You certainly sound very inspirational, I must say. And uh, you know that, that that's one thing. You talk about uh, being close to nature there. Um, how do you experience that? How do you both experience that? Well, not always quite as uh, intensely as having the orcas swimming right under our right. Well, Yeah, that was a good um, one. <laughs> <laughs> but there are times. Yeah. yeah. But you know, we're, we're kind of like literally our own floating, uh, you know, village in the sense that we have, we have to produce our, we produce our own electricity with solar panels. Do you? Okay. Um, yeah. And, yeah. In the natural world that way. I, when you live at sea level in mm -hmm. effectively uh, a tent, yeah. <laughs> you're you're very close to nature whether it's just hearing the water slap up against the hull and looking over the side and seeing fish or in knowing the water. without having to look it up what the moon faces mm -hmm. but it's also um uh like i mentioned before it's weather weather influences every day and so we pay particular attention to weather to make sure that we're not getting into an uncomfortable situation when you do that mm -hmm. you see patterns over time and so of course there's climate change and the, the traditional weather patterns are different um, around the world. We've been in areas where the monsoonal winds should be one thing and they're not. They're three months late. And it's not just a small anomaly. It's part of a bigger thing. And that has a greater impact. So I'm thinking of when uh, one time that occurred to us, which was sailing across the Indian Ocean. And we were in an atoll in the middle of the Indian Ocean, uh, uh, a British Indian Ocean territory that's protected. Yeah. And it has spectacular corals in it because I mean, there's nobody there. You're literally in the middle of the Indian ocean and um, the coral was bleaching uh, and the coral was bleaching. It was dying. You know, the bleaching is, it expels all the, the zooanthellae that live inside there, which are what give it color, which is like a last gasp of saving itself because of the increase in the temperature of, of the water. And it was, um, you know, it's minuscule. It's, it's a tiny, tiny change, but it's, it's enough. And we were there when the monsoon switched and when that wind changed, when the cooler water started blowing in, you could see, you could see that this was being arrested, but you know, we were in this uh, spectacular spot and it was probably 80 plus percent bleached and climbing during um, the weeks that we were there. We've also seen it plenty over in, in various places on land. Uh, in Borneo, we went up the Kumai river 
and and you see an unimaginable amount of logging uh, coming down barges loaded barge after barge with mm-hmm. timber but then to go into a reserve area that's that's uh, protected and, and not cut and to <laughs> and, and realize that no actually somebody's illegally logged that too oh, in really? parts. Yeah. Oh, that's really oh, in parts. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's heartbreaking but but then to be able to still see orangutans in the wild Mm-hmm. And in Sri Lanka, we did a safari and to be able to drive along and have a, this giant water buffalo <laughs> running alongside of us and safaris <laughs> in, in South Africa mm-hmm. to, to, to have the mobility to put ourselves in these places. We're not rich. We're, we're actually really quite poor by um, modern American or Western society standards, Developed standards yeah. but with our means of travel. And mobility, it puts us in these places where we can reach out and, and see and touch nature quite in a, a literal way. Well, that our kids could learn things like, you know, when they were uh, five, seven, and 10 when we arrived in French Polynesia, and that they could, within a short period of time, with all the time we spent in the water there, understand the fundamentals of a coral reef ecology, what a healthy reef looked like mm-hmm. and what an unhealthy reef looked like and what features to look for for that and what symbiotic relationships. Yeah, when you are. have a five-year-old right. explaining what a symbiotic relationship on a reef is uh, to, to another adult, they, they feel a little intimidated. And that's, and they take it for granted a little bit now, but they've had an incredible education in, mm-hmm. um, in living in the natural world. Yeah. You've basically been self-educating. Hey, uh, the children all along. We have. Is, has we that have. Have been obstacles or cultural judgment? Yeah, it's true, yeah. and I, yeah, I, sure. I think society yeah. generally wants the best for children, or at least there's the face of wanting the best for kids. And yeah. so, it's probably easy to judge when somebody does something differently. And there, there are certainly people that have different paths for their children that probably aren't aren't the the healthiest. But mm-hmm. um, when we were preparing to go cruising. My education is mixed at best, and I was not worried about the type how our children would would learn and become, you know, become intelligent thinking uh, adults one day. Mm-hmm. I See, just we're felt very like, different though, because Jamie's the entrepreneur and he's used to kind of, you know, figuring things it. out. And mm-hmm. I am completely conventionally educated. I'm overeducated, really. I've got multiple master's degrees that I don't even use. And okay. <laughs> so we come out of these very different places. My comfort zone was there is a path and you follow it and then reward follows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in preparation, was, you in, own your future. <laughs> Bian read every book ever written on education. It didn't matter what language is in, she read it. And and I read a few. And um, and so when we started out, it we our approach was a little different and we kind of ended up merging in the middle. But ultimately what happened was for us what worked is to discover that there's so much education through experience and experiential learning is very powerful. It's, um, I think it's more concrete than if, if you can read a book and your memory is such that you can, you remember everything, you memorize everything that you read. That's a great gift, but not many people have that. Mm-hmm. And so to go and experience what is, what is post-apartheid South Africa? like and to be able to go and talk to people that Not lived by reading it. in a book but yeah people who've gone through it mm-hmm. by uh, you know visiting the apartheid museum in johannesburg by talking to people um of of multi-shades in in the country about what what it's like pre uh what the transition was like and what it's like today um the perspectives give you an education that you could never get by having a, a unit study on it or to to see how people in the U.S. argue whether climate change is real, mm-hmm. and then to go into the Maldives where sea levels increase at, has literally is causing islands to, to erode away in places. So to be anchored off places with a very physical, obvious representation of climate change. Mm-hmm. Oh, and this is actually just before this, that reef bleach. And this is an island nation that's literally moving people because the little islands are too expensive to keep from sinking. Well, they have to, yeah, they have to build a seawall. Because yeah, I've, I read that actually. I read that, which which they say might be counterproductive, by the way. But who knows? And and right. who knows? We've not been been there before. But mm-hmm. to to go and step back in time in Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. where these people that are really disenfranchised from the world, if they didn't make it, grow it, or catch it, they don't have it. Mm-hmm. And so people coming up and dugout trade, canoes yeah. to see literally trade. to see what life is like now, but it really was like for most of the world's population time. a thousand years ago. Yeah. Is a remarkable education. 
yeah besides that they live like that but they're quite happy actually living like that as well hey that's something you see as well yes and no because they are okay to know yeah i think we romanticize that um life is very hard and people die young and that's not that's that's difficult when you know that there are other ways mm-hmm. and you don't have the option to access them. They They're have, out of your reach. I think people have pride in their in their cultural yeah. heritage, mm-hmm. but they also know um, they also it's a very difficult life. If you get an infection, it that's could a, be a life ending yeah. infection because mm-hmm. they don't have medical supplies in most islands like that. That that's true, and because they know better now, they know their societies where people take care of you. Um, that might make the change, but beforehand they did not. That's right. Well. Yeah. Well, and, and simple things that we take for granted now, like weather um, forecasting mm-hmm. technology, mm-hmm. is so advanced and sophisticated. But when we go to Papua New Guinea or even here in Mexico, we were at an island a couple of, or last year, last summer, months ago. Mm-hmm. and and the local fishermen were there. And they're itinerant fishermen, right? Like their home is um, scores of miles away. And so they're they're sleeping rough on the islands or in their boats and going out for a week or more and then going back with their catch. But they don't have weather information. And so we, and we were, knew there was a big We were telling coming. them there's a big system coming and yeah. they were like, oh, okay, thank you. And they moved to a different island where they could get better protection because they would have been exposed where they were. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have known otherwise. By the way, do you have special insurance? Um now that there's COVID as well, do you have different insurance for traveling around or how does that work? We, we don't. We Possibly we should. Um, the insurance market for boats is really difficult right now. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time we've actually gone without insurance because it became, uh, uh, we have basically, I want, to, I want to say unaffordable, but that's like, it's a difficult word to use, right? Yeah. We have uh, liability insurance. Yeah. It's okay. necessary to go into a marina, but, um, but what's happened in the last number of years is that um, hurricanes and, and severe weather and lightning has caused so much damage to vessels mm-hmm. that the marine insurance industry has said, we're, we're done losing money. We're, we're paying out too much. And so they've dramatically increased rates. They have um, increased the burden to, to use your boat. So we we've sailed entirely around the earth. We have lots of miles. I was a professional sailor and sailmaker. Mm-hmm. And when we were preparing to cross the Pacific again last year, before the pandemic shut it down, the insurance company we'd been with for a while doubled our premium and required that we have a third adult on the boat with us when we go sailing. Never had that before. And it's like, <laughs> you know, we have a lot of experience. Uh-huh. We've never had a claim. Why, why is this? Why and they basically wanted to not insure us anymore. Wow. Okay. That that doesn't sound that doesn't sound very good though, does it? What, what would you do if something would happen, if I may ask? Because you mentioned the pitfalls, there's storms, there's pirates, there's yeah. breakdowns which you have right now with an engine. We'd have to be able to recover from a total loss. And you have to recover from a total loss. Yeah. Okay. And and that's a risk that we have to take. Yeah. We we're we're not risk takers despite the fact that we are in the water Truly. with whale sharks and other yeah. other critters. But um uh we Put a lot of effort into managing risk, watching the weather. And I think this actually goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where you know I'm I've always been the rules follower, going down the path you know that I was pointed. And and Jamie's much more comfortable as an entrepreneur. But what what this life has internalized for me is that uh, so much of um, we have so much more control over our destiny, and that we could always start over. We come from the very good fortune of having been born in a, a place of privilege and we know opportunity yeah we could start over if we had to okay that's fair that's that's fair enough and obviously you have one one kid at university now so that's always good as well he can support you yes <laughs> that's what we keep telling him <laughs> Okay, let's talk sustainability because you have solar panels, panels there, which uh, you already mentioned right. that. And uh, I read a few articles. Um, obviously, I actually did a podcast with a lady who was going to the COP meeting. Um, was supposed to be in Chile, so she probably had to sail back because it was not in the end. It uh, right. was moved, but um, obviously she went by by sailing boat um, from Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because you know, sustainable. Um, is it actually sustainable sailing? Tell me about it. Oh, I mean, we use the white flappy things, but yeah, there's an yeah, engine that, yeah. that we talked about in the beginning. Yeah. It's also quite important for our safety. Yeah. Um, I think in one sense, technology is getting um, sailing and the ability to cruise around by sailboat closer to being sustainable. Mm-hmm. Certain types of boat designs like catamarans have lots of 
real estate and therefore can carry a, a much more capable solar uh, setup. Right. So on a monohull like us, we're limited to real estate. And so we only currently have about 650 watts of solar. The current uh, panels are more efficient. So we could probably scale up to maybe 900 or 1,000 watts. And that's and helpful. I don't know if that's meaningful. You know, How many hours audience. of energy do you get out of that on the bus? Right. So with what we have now, we get about 120 amp hours per day. Okay. Uh, and in, in power units, we use probably 250 amp hours a day supplying refrigeration and you, computers. Yeah, and, what do you suppose an average household uses a oh, conventional oh, household? Uh, that's the number to compare it with, right? And I, okay. I don't know that, but I know our footprint is so light. And we probably yeah. use maybe 5% of what a regular household does in terms of water and electricity and things, maybe even less than that. I, I don't know. So I'm sure you have a fridge. Regard, you have a fridge, you have a TV, or you have all kinds of no, uh, lights. Have, no TV, no? No TV. We have computers, wow. we have LED lights, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. and those are quite efficient. Sure. Really, the refrigeration is our biggest uh, consumer. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have um, uh, a water maker. Water makers. Reverse osmosis takes the water and makes drinking water. Okay. And, and they use a lot of power, and, mm -hmm. and for that, we had one that ran off of 12 volts, but it was very slow. And for 11 years, we lived off this machine that made about five gallons per hour. So we have a higher power draw uh, water maker now, which uh, turns out having having enough water is is nice. It's sure. uh, I hate yeah. to keep it as a luxury, but it kind of is a luxury. Uh -huh. We've been to we've been to islands in Madagascar, uh, the Barren Islands, where mm -hmm. there's no natural source of water on these islands, and when we were there and it hadn't rained for a while, mm -hmm. it was getting to be a little desperate. And so we ran our water maker almost 24 hours a day, filling jerry cans for people on the island. Wow, that's very so cool. water, water yeah. is about the most precious resource that we have mm -hmm. um, after, after time itself, I guess. Mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, but we don't make enough green energy to be able to support all of our needs. Okay. If we had a different type of boat, we could get much closer and almost um, More to, to be able to have even electric propulsion mm -hmm. driven from lithium batteries. Mm -hmm. Now, all those come with their own carbon footprint. Lithiums are not clean. It's it's not, it, it's dirty They're mining. They're cost lithium. of all of the tech. Right? So, so it's, sustainability is a tough thing to say. Totem right now is almost 40 years old. So there was a carbon footprint in the plastics to make the boat to begin with. Mm -hmm. But that's- She's not a single use plastic though. <laughs> no, amortized over 40 years. That's uh, okay. It's pretty low right now. Um, would we love better and, and more technology? Absolutely. I'd mm -hmm. love to get more solar. We have a wind turbine. It's okay, okay when you're in a windy place. In Mexico, it's usually not. Not so much wind here. So that okay. doesn't do much for us. Crossing the Pacific would be a lot of wind again. Southeast Asia, very, very little wind. Hydro generators are, are, have been around for decades, mm -hmm. but they are uh, getting more refined in the last, say, five, five or 10 years. And so they're, they're an interesting option right now that we might look at as well. There's a lot of articles on all electrical uh, boats uh, nowadays as well, uh, but obviously there, highly there are, expensive, I, think, I would say. I think uh, there's some interesting attempts to uh, try and show the the bigger ocean crossing capability for boats like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite there yet um, for coastal and smaller hops. There are people that do, but it's a big trade-off um, in other ways too. And one of those trade-offs is safety. Um, it, um, it, at the cost of safety or at the limit of where you can go and, and things like that. Mm, fair enough. Obviously, um, sailing sounds more romantic anyway than an electrical boat, uh, I would say, but that could be just me. It's always more pleasant to sail than to listen to it in. Of course. How do you handle waste? Where do you get your food? How do you, obviously, repairs, we've done that already, but how? what do you do with uh, food? And uh, obviously, it's packaged. What do you do with that? Well, it depends where we are. It turns out people everywhere eat. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we can show up in a place and it may be a, a, in an island like, again, like Papua New Guinea, where they've got an island near where they live, where they grow their food. Mm -hmm. And so we'll trade things that we brought for trading purposes as the trading culture for produce that they grow on land. Um, to, the, to the reverse of that, when we were traveling in the East Coast, you go to a big grocery store and and it was culture shock really to come from places like Papua New Guinea and then go to a, a grocery store in the US where the aisle of potato chips is larger than um, 
I mean, it's unimaginable how many variations and options there are of, of stuff. Um, we have to adapt a little bit as we go. And there are times when we provision very deeply. And there are one of the, it's one of the things that made it easy for us to deal with the pandemic in, mm-hmm. in some ways too, when there was a whole lot of uncertainty in the early months and we weren't sure about even things like supply chains for food and what might be interrupted. Um, we knew that we could live from what we had on the boat for many, many, many months okay. um, and feel pretty happy. I mean, you know, fresh things would be nice, but we'd, we'd be fine. Yeah, you'll um, survive. And then as it turned, yeah, it tr- turned out we connected with farmers and producers that we wouldn't have met in non-pandemic times and have eaten better than ever, which is kind it of the irony. It was brilliant this summer. These farmers would come down with their, their produce harvested mm-hmm. and down to a, a jetty. And we would come in by our dinghy and everybody's masked up. Mm-hmm. And rather than going to a small tienda or a grocery store here in Mexico and Baja, mm-hmm. we would just look at what the farmers brought in and say, yes, we'd love those, the green onions For and the one, tomatoes. And the other guy would be like, here you go. This is what was fresh this week. This is, you know, this is what we've harvested. So enjoy it. And or like, here's, that? here's well, goat cheese and, <laughs> and honey. Um, it mm-hmm. was brilliant. Uh, so it really varies with the places that we're at and what mm-hmm. the opportunities are. We also, we fish a little bit. We're not, we're not. Uh, huge into fishing. Um, and we've also made the choice where if we're in a place where the, the the biome underwater doesn't feel healthy, then we don't fish. Our son actually was um, a typical boy, loved fishing early on when we, when we began cruising. Mm-hmm. And by the time we reached Southeast Asia, he had seen so much overfishing he stopped eating any seafood altogether yeah. oh, really? as a, okay. as a moral. He meat, but he, he won't eat seafood. That's and, not good on the boat, is it? Or, I don't know, but not eating fish on a boat, that, that, that doesn't seem to compute. It seems somehow. incongruous, doesn't it? Because <laughs> you can't eat beautiful fresh seafood. I, I can't buy seafood anymore. Uh, oh, really? You know, no. Not in a store. No, it's just not the same. It's We're so spoiled by having the uh, incredibly fresh, you know, straight yeah. out of the water. Well, and in um, a grocery seafood. store, was it sustainably harvested? Or is it some uh, massive ship that's just pulling everything out and there's mm-hmm. so much waste catch. You, you mentioned something about trading when you go to places. What do you trade? What do you take with you, if I may ask? Yeah, mm-hmm. it depends on the part of the world. Um, okay. For the most part, trading is not a feature of the way we it's live. It's a bygone era. It is. Okay. Where, uh, where, the world is so connected now, right? Yeah. Um, it, but we do a lot of gifting and gifting is about making friendships. And mm-hmm. uh, actually those fishermen that we helped out with weather information, I'd seen them on the beach realized, you know, that they were, uh, there's someone's kids too. If, okay. Big grown men. But anyway, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I made two loaves of cinnamon bread for breakfast this morning. I'm going to take them one. And they brought the pan back in the afternoon, piled high with scallops that they, they, uh, shucked for us and a lobster tail on top, you know, just the loveliest humans, truly. In in the places where we have traded, uh, Papua New Guinea was was by far the uh, the the biggest feature there. Mm-hmm. When we arrived there, very very few cruising boats go there, so we're like a spaceship that showed up. Where we are a spaceship carrying a huge grocery store of opportunities, and so literally show up in a village and everybody would come running down the hills and they'd swim out and they'd come out in a half of a surfboard that washed up one day and their dugout canoes. And we were a trading station. And so um, we would set up rules around, okay, we're not going to start trading at five o'clock in the morning because we're still sleeping. Mm-hmm. But we'd have people that would literally, you could hear them come up at five in the morning and tie their canoe off the side of the boat very quietly and respectfully. And what they wanted to trade was for uh, common commodities. We'd heard about this in research before we left Australia at the time. And so we came supplied with, I think, more than a thousand pounds of stuff. And it was everything from clothing that we had collected from our kids' schools when they attended school in Australia to staples like rice and flour and sugar and salt. Um, uh, Real prized possessions were hand tools because they don't have things like that. Okay. So a, a hammer, a, a, a saw, a hand plane uh, were, were very val- valuable. Um, fishing. Nails. Fishing line, mm-hmm. nails, hooks, wow. things like that. Things Simple that stuff. improve quality yeah. of life. Did you ever feel in danger? Because I, I read something about a journalist that was lost for like, I don't know how long. Papua New Guinea um, is a place that has a mixed record. Okay. for security yeah. and it is 
uh, because we travel with the most precious things in our world, our kids, yeah. going yeah. to places that are safe is a priority. And so we researched very carefully in advance. And we researched a lot um, before going to PNG. Being, being we're in Australia, Bian said, I want to go to Papua New Guinea. And I said, I don't want to die. <laughs> and uh, so she jumped into a research project mm -hmm. for a few months, talking to people that had been there, overland travelers, um, uh, cruisers. There aren't many, but some of them. And interviewing people and, and researching travel accounts of where it's gone badly. And she figured out a pattern. It was, it was hard to find. I mean, there were uh, there was no clear information other than these terrible headlines and reports of the incidents and very real events like that reporter yeah. um, to to kind of create the initial uh, impression. And by by reading uh, and connecting for firsthand reports about boats, those handful of boats, because there just aren't that many of them, um, we could we could build a picture of what. Uh, a path might be where safe places to go were mm -hmm. and understand what the underlying dynamics were and go with full confidence that we really should be fine, that it shouldn't be any more dangerous than any other place. Mm -hmm. But still there's a layer of street smarts you have to apply yeah. to. And so when we would show up in a, a plate, we, we picked this path basically in Papua New Guinea, it was extraction industry where mm -hmm. that occurs, clan structure breaks down mm -hmm. and the chief doesn't have the control and authority Plan structure is substituting for rule of law where there isn't mm -hmm. right effective and, rule of law. And so that's where um, real, real violent crime does really happen. It's a real thing where extraction industry, timber and gas and fish mining, and mining isn't mm -hmm. is where plan structure is. And those are the places that we went to. We'd still show up, though, and and go and talk to the chief. And now this is common among many island cultures, too, not just in Papua New Guinea. Yes. And you, if you think of it, you, you arrive on your boat and, and you anchor. And I think coming from the places that you and we come from, uh, mm -hmm. the water is sort of like free territory, right? You can just, you can just park wherever you want to park for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, but in these islands, you might be sitting on top of what's effectively feeding their community. Yeah. Um, it's their front yard. Mm -hmm. And it's um, the respectful thing to do is to go ask if it's okay. And by making that step, um, and by trying to bring goodwill, uh, we always in Papua New Guinea arriving in a new place, we try to bring fish and we, good luck catching on the way in, um, bring a fish, meet the village elder or elected representative or chief or whoever, you know, whoever it is and ask, is it okay to be here? Do you have rules for us? Is there a different area you'd prefer us to anchor? Where are the crocodiles? Because every island has crocodiles and you mm -hmm. just don't, you don't want to run into them. <laughs> and if the place, if it doesn't feel right to us, mm -hmm. we get up and leave. Yep. And and, and honestly, mostly in Papua New Guinea, our strategy worked out quite well. And I don't think we ever left a place um, immediately. There were a couple that we spent one or two nights and then felt like the eyes were getting a little bit closer and on. it was time to move. Mm -hmm. But we were also in places where we would ask the chief, are there any rascals here? Their term for, for bad mm -hmm. guys. Mm -hmm. And in and a few places, they would say, we have a couple, but I will watch them for you mm -hmm. and you'll have no problem here. And and these Papuan men are ginormous <laughs> and stout, and uh, and you feel like okay, they're gonna they're gonna watch you. out for us. We're good. <laughs> but we've had a few places where we didn't feel comfortable, and either we were on an anchor, but on watch all night, mm -hmm. keeping an eye out, or or we picked up anchor and left. Um, not it, they probably would have been fine, but it was just a gut feeling. Uh, it seems like you respect the cultures for sure, because where I remember was in Colombia, I heard about a couple of Germans who went deep into the jungle and they told them you cannot take photographs and they took photographs and well, they just shot them with an arrow. But that's something that from what I can hear, asking the mm -hmm. chief if everything is all right, what you can do, what you can't do, who's a problem, who's not. You respect the places where you go. Is that one of the recommendations you would give people or is, is, is there more or yeah, Peter, I'm so glad you brought it up because it is it's like the top rule for how you have to live with mm -hmm. respect for our fellow our fellow humans and our planet. Mm -hmm. And this respect for our fellow humans is something that uh, um, it fell off a little bit during the pandemic, I think, uh, because people be got caught up in what they wanted to do and fighting the uh, restrictions that places were imposing mm -hmm. and wanting to reinterpret restrictions in the way that uh, favored their 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 choices as yeah. opposed to what they ought to do. Yeah. And, and even beyond that, uh, when you show up in a place that's a very different culture, you have to do 
what's respectful. So a good example is, is uh, Southeast Asia, uh, where most of the countries are, are Muslim. And Indonesia is the largest population of Muslim people in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and Brunei and Malaysia. And so when you show up there, uh, I'm not going to wear shorts and a tank top to greet officials. You you wear you wear other clothes when you go there. You more yes. Do you cover your hair or? Um... Um, you know, there were only a few places where I covered my head, okay. uh, but that would have been actually going. Uh, well, actually, it was in Maldives, Mal- uh, Maldivian Islands. Yeah. People don't think of it that way because resort islands are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Mal- Maldivian communities mm-hmm. are very very uh, conservative uh, Muslim and. Yeah, I, I would be head covered, head to toe, like down to my wrists, down to my ankles. Yeah. And I it, I still remember Granny on the corner giving me like the evil eye. Like, who, oh, really? who are you? What are you doing in my, around here polluting my community? Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you feel kind of bad and go somewhere else. And your daughters? Um, our daughters, yeah. you know, well, it's been a great education for them. And actually, I was just looking at a picture um, a couple of days ago of our youngest when we arrived in Indonesia, uh, in Eastern Indonesia, and where she was having her first experience with a culture that's, you know, steeped in Islam. And fun for her was uh, wearing a headscarf. Like that became part of the, the dress up imaginary play mm-hmm. wardrobe was a headscarf. What, what can you recommend to people um, who want to travel sustainable um, in the way that you do sailing or going to a different culture? How can you be more responsible? Let's say it like that. It might be the better word for it. So I think, do you have any recommendations? I think that's a good question. I think in terms of guiding principles, what we were just talking about with respect is really important. And what we alluded to earlier around research is really important to be informed about where you're going and to, to um, we can't see ourselves through the cultural lens of the other, but we can get a pretty good idea of what's, what's okay and what's not and, and arrive with sensitivity to that. Um, I really think that's such an important way to, to try to travel and traveling slow helps us do that because you don't have to get it all right you know, as soon as you walk out of the gate. I think it's also to be open-minded because if you come in with your own cultural baggage, you may issue judgment on people. That's, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. We actually learned this lesson. Um, <laughs> uh, Papua New Guinea is the theme of the morning, I guess, but um, we learned this lesson when we were there in the first place we arrived in Papua New Guinea, where we got to know these, uh, these men that were part of the, uh, one family, three generations, and that was our introduction. It was an island that were yeah. itinerant on the island that we arrived and, in. And the more we got to learn about their culture, it was a magical way to do this because it was it was just one on one, effectively. And and one evening, they had made a fire, and we're sitting around the fire, and the they put coconut shells, and they would burn along this long line, mm-hmm. and and we're talking Little into the inverted night. Inverted half domes of coconuts. And we brought in our our baggage that um, that shark finning is a terrible thing, and and it is. There's no question that it is. And these men were had been shark finning, mm-hmm. um, and they would go out and they would fin and they would collect. And then after some number of many months, to, to leap a couple of things, it is literally the only way their kids go to school because mm-hmm. it's the only way to earn hard currency, mm-hmm. and. Um, you want your kids. You want your kids to have a better life. So sure. you it, want that money, it, which you have to have as a fisherman in Papua New Guinea to send your kids to school. And, and so, nuts, so, with but. no opportunity. But I said to them one night, I said, "Is there any way that you can use more of the shark? Right, Because like it seems feed your, like your community too. It's, it's one thing to kill an animal, but to use more of it." Mm-hmm. And they looked at me and they said, "How dumb are you? Have you ever been? Have you ever been in an, in a?" open dugout canoe in the ocean wrestling a 15 foot shark, shark that's really angry because you just cut its fin off right it's like oh yeah yeah okay, yeah, okay. and and while it's not great they're not the problem it's the massive ships that do it in huge huge numbers mm-hmm. um so it's it's go beyond just like it's international interests and the drive for things like lithium batteries so that we can live sustainably that is causing mining to destroy their uh, way of life. It all kind of comes around in uncomfortable ways. Absolutely. You you have solar on your ship. That means you have batteries as well. Um, mm-hmm. What 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 happens with those batteries? Um, have you replaced them already, or we've replaced them a few times? Okay. They're they are AGM or lead lead based batteries, yeah. and uh, about a five year lifespan for five a years. That, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's our that's our power plan. Effectively, that's how we store the energy. That's mm-hmm. our grid and. Mm-hmm. And it really is the heartbeat of 
refrigeration and everything electrical on the boat. So Auto it's important that we're managing Lights, the, the, yeah. the electrons coming in as much as they are going out as well. Um, we're excited about new technologies, especially what I think is the next generation after the current chemistry and the lithium batteries, because they're, they appear to be more environmentally or less impactful environmentally, mm -hmm. the lithium uh, sodium possibilities. And I'm reading about solid state batteries um, that yeah. seem interesting yeah. as well. Built a whole and, chassis of cars out of it, uh, from what I hear. Yeah. Yes. And I can't wait for those things yeah. until we can have them because uh, because we do we do use our batteries and they do wear out over time. It's expensive. Yes, it is. Yeah, uh, yeah batteries are quite lithium is is been beyond our our budget. We've not been able to do that, so we're still with lead batteries, and and that's okay. It, it meets our needs. So and lithium. You know the value is there. It would cost us less over time, but the upfront investment is high, and mm -hmm. we just don't have the money for the upfront investment. It's it's changing. It's getting yeah. better, but um, it's a nice step to what I think is even better solutions coming. Sure. Is it is it more expensive to be sustainable on a boat than the old fashioned way? I think it uh, honestly, the marine environment is tough, and it can it it does come with that. Keeping a boat safe and and sound. Um, is it's a working environment. It takes a lot to keep a boat. The marine environment is harsh. And so electrical connections corrode and motors wear and, and stainless steel is not so stainless after a while. Or if we talk about really the old fashioned way and people that were cruising, um, you know, some decades before us, but without engines uh, mm -hmm. at all. And without that engine, um, you know, perhaps that even their lights were lanterns. So what do you even need a battery for? I mean, mm -hmm. there are certainly ways to go that are at their core more sustainable, but they also make a lot of trade-offs in terms of safety. Um, and they're not, they're not the trade-offs that we choose. We there are a lot of ways to go sailing and yeah. some people go with, <clears throat> with a really high footprint, high cost. And if that suits their, their style, mm -hmm. it's still probably a lower impact mm -hmm. than it is in a regular conventional land life driving a, a big suv sure. uh around town and in a giant house with two people eating a house cooling a house <laughs> but um and then there's people that go with with very modest uh boats and budgets and 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 set up and have honestly a very very low um impact we're somewhere in the middle because we want to be comfortable enough Camping, mm. camping for 13 years would get old. Yeah. And so we, we enjoy food. We like to cook and, and uh, we like to get around and there's some cost to that. So we use that description as a way of differentiating it for people. Like camping is the thing that you do that's rustic, that's fun for a short time, but mm -hmm. you can't live that way. And you've got to know where your line is mm -hmm. from between living simply and camping. And it falls in very different places for people. And it's one of the things that, you know, we help people work through. What's right for you? What's the setup that is sustainable for you? Absolutely. I've seen this movie Contiki. I thought it was one step too far. Uh, I'm We're sure you've all, seen it right? as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, where can people find you? Is there anything you would like to say to people that are listening? I think the one thing I'd love to say is that this anyone can do this, yeah. really. There are uh, um, perhaps some very extreme physical or financial limitations would, mm. would make it difficult for some people to fulfill. But just about anyone who wants to do this really can pursue it and realize it. And, and it doesn't have to be on a boat. It can just be living differently. And I think that's, you know, a theme maybe in your podcast. How do you just live a little bit differently and step off the wheel and change things? I think that's the key to it. We're, we're sailors and this is our style at it. And I think it can be a nice way to live for a lot of people, but not everyone. And so maybe it's over land, maybe it's flying to a country that you have interest in or you know nothing about and and moving into a, a, an apartment that you live in for six months and then you go back to your regular life again. It's not about You'll doing be it. changed. You'll be different. It's not about Expanding doing it your horizons. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. not about being on a boat. It's about living a different life and and what that brings with terms of in terms of respect for other people so you're not judging other people through news headlines and mm -hmm. tv programs you're experiencing yourself firsthand it's like what my cousin said to us when we were expecting our first child this is going to wreck your life for the better you can never go back it changes the way that you look at the world and if more people can get out great and if we can help them do that 
awesome. Um, and yeah, so our, our service, it's um, the basics and a lot of storytelling yeah. and resources are on our website, which is mm-hmm. Sailing Totem. Sailingtotem.com. And you're on Facebook as well, huh? You have a page there. Facebook yeah. and Instagram. And we got a couple of videos, but we're not really, we're not YouTubers so much. Brilliant. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've learned a lot and it was actually very, very inspiring. I want to go sailing now. <laughs> Come sailing sometime, Peter. We highly recommend it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you very much for having us. It's truly a pleasure and this has been a lot of fun. It has been. Thank you so much. That was a podcast with the Totem family, with B, Han and Jamie. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, very, very, very inspiring, as I mentioned already. Uh, you know what? I'll put all the links in the show notes. You can find the latest news on podcast.earth. You have been listening to Peter, Peter De Vries, and thank you so much for doing so. Please don't forget to tune in next time. We are going to talk about how to travel and respect elephants and respect their habitats. And there is that is going to be a great podcast as well. Thank you very much.